0: Things are going to start happening to me now. You've done all the reading. You're a scholar. You're a professor. You've done all the reading. You've done the intellectual heavy lifting. Or less, he shouldn't die. You wouldn't know a fact if it begged you all night long. Want to like, um, you know, give the wrong impression? Because I am,
1: I, I am very high.
2: Can it right up behind him with a hatchet. Smash, smash, smash. care I'm a libertarian what I'm getting is did you vote for Joe Jorgensen or Trump (laughs) that was the perfect answer thank you
1: It's happening, folks. Thaddeus Russell is in the building. We can start this podcast. Thanks for showing up. So look, this is a libertarian podcast review review podcast. But the great thing I get to do is interview people as well, which I love. So I did a show uh, of that, you know, having a conversation with people. I met uh, Nick Gillespie at the Reno um, uh, convention, and it was great Is a guy that I feel like I could have a conversation with out in a normal life and, and thoroughly enjoy it. You're one of those kind of people too, but it's odd to just zoom and have a conversation with people. So this is kind of like porn and prostitution, where you add a, you add a camera and suddenly it's okay in mass dissemination. So here we are. We're we're you know, Thaddeus, why is your career so bad that you've come on this podcast?
3: I'm just honored to be uh, porn and prostitution. That's all. Um, thank you for that. What, what was the question? <laughs> why, why is your career so bad that you've uh, slummed it to this the, the depths of the libertarian podcast review? That's what I'm saying. Is this is this is the greatest honor, man. I, it's the opposite of what you're saying. Don't don't uh, don't deride yourself. I'm no, self advocating I, I, I somehow, yeah, you are. Some somehow I didn't know about that review you did of my show, which was I think more than a year ago. Yeah. And um, I somehow it just popped up. Somehow I saw it somewhere, and I watched it just like last week, I think. And as I told you before we started rolling here, I I was blown away because you. I think you spent an entire hour and you really went through it and you really analyzed it in. And yes, you said nothing but positive things. So certainly that's part of why I'm here. But it was really more that you get it. You really get what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do many things with the podcast and some things I don't make explicit. But you sort of figured it out. Um, And I just really appreciated that. Like it just means a lot because the podcast is the thing in my in my whole career of all the things I've done in terms of work, it's the thing I'm proudest of because it is, it is, it represents all of me. I don't, it's not just my scholarly side. It's not my academic side. It's not just my political side or my intellectual side. As you know, I talk a lot about myself. I talk a lot about feelings, emotions, psychology, uh, background, parents, childhood, all that stuff with myself and the guests. Yeah. And then I try to, I try to weave that into the politics to try to better understand why we think the way we do about politics and, Um, But also, I just think that's the that's the stuff that is most powerful and memorable. I think what people remember about my show is those personal moments when people when people say things they have never said elsewhere and they reveal themselves and they're vulnerable with me. And those are the moments I remember. And those are the moments that are gold for me. But then, you know, you also get sort of how I try to do the interview. I mean, interviewing, I take very seriously as a craft and I've worked on it and worked on it a lot and um actually the you spent most of the time talking about the earlier shows which was five years ago now um which um when i listen to them now i i certainly like i like them generally but I, i i hear things that i don't like and i try to correct them but i've been working on it for a long time i i pay attention to interviewers and how they do it how they do interviews and i try to be good at it and um it's something I didn't know that I had a gift for until I started doing this. I thought I'd be OK, but I didn't I didn't know that I would really have a, a really special sort of feeling for it. Um, <clears throat> and so it's been really gratifying for me in so many ways. Then the politics, you know, you you most certainly get the politics. You made it clear that I do not identify as a libertarian and that I have right. significant differences with libertarians while being very, very close to libertarians on many, many issues. So I just Tyler, I just. Thank you. Again, it's, oh, you really, right. you really understand, you, you understand me. You see me.
1: <laughs> well, uh, your, your uh, message that you sent to me was uh, something you could put on a dust jacket of a, of a book, or I guess this podcast, which is, you know, you did it, mm. you did a good pot review and you did it. Correct. That's, that's what it was great. <laughs> uh, No, I, so for me, and, and I'll just, well, I got a litany of things to talk to you about today. Uh, and mm-hmm. so once again, thanks for coming on here, but sure. um, with some interesting parts is I found your podcast kind of when I came out of the, the the right wing really decided I'm not, I'm no longer part of that. And I was going through the the Liberty side and I found yours cause it was Camille or yeah, I think Camille, I'd found him. And then, you know, there's something referencing. So I found you early on. And then obviously Michael Malice was your first episode and mm-hmm. it blew my mind. Um, maybe I'll just skip right forward. And one of the reasons is being kind of the right winger, but always being in the Liberty space of, you know, I, I knew some of the you know, Bastiat and, and I'd read some of these things early on, but coming mm-hmm. into it later in my life, um, I, I held on to some later principles. And one of those things that kind of moved me through or, or had a problem with was uh, the Vietnam war as a right winger. It's, it's a war that, you know, we didn't do mm-hmm. correctly and we should have done harder. And yeah. <laughs> the other, other side was always the little red book of Mao and Jane mm-hmm. Fonda, which kind of how you see this. So it's that. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the other side, which the Green Beret movie with John Wayne type of thing, right? So mm-hmm. I, I end up watching um, the Vietnam War uh, documentary, and I saw this enlisted guy who um, wasn't a lefty, and he, was, uh, comp- he hated the war, but he also hated Jane Fond and it blew my mind, and then I kind of mm-hmm. got into this. So I, I guess for me, it was interesting to finally see some of the liberty side that was, didn't hate capitalism, and also mm-hmm. um, wasn't necessarily, you know, about it, just the, the lefty side of it. So, oh, we've got someone coming in, a red flag law coming in? No, got a wind coming in. No, okay. no, yeah, no, I guess. no worries. No, not
3: the cops, just the wind. Okay. Right.
1: So anyway, finding your show was a, a, a very good help for me. And then you've obviously had a bunch of guests. What was your goal when you first started the show and have you been able to, to stay true to that goal and how has it changed?
3: Um, yeah, one of the things you noticed is also that I have probably the most diverse set of guests ideologically that you will find in the media. I've never seen a show with a wider array of ideologies among my guests. I mean, I have many, many socialists and Marxists and communists and a few liberals. I tend not to be as interested in liberals, but I've had some, I even had a goddamn, um, one of the staff writers for the New York times this year on my show. He didn't, he did not w- know what was going on when he came on, <laughs> but I've had everybody. And then, of course, I've had on the, you know, I've had libertari- many libertarians and some lots of paleos of various sorts. I've had a couple people who are outright fascists and race realists. And yeah, so it's everybody. Um, some really great Christian conservatives like Anthony Iselin. I always talk about him. I love that episode. Uh, yeah, it's really across the board. So that I stayed true to, you know, it's uh, ecumenical and and maybe even more ecumenical now than it was when I started. It's pretty libertarian heavy at the beginning, but oh yeah, I mean, if you look at the last like 50 guests I've had, it's, you would have no idea what my own politics are. You would have no clue. Yeah. If you just looked at the guest list, not a clue. Yeah. Um, so that, yes, I Zoom, doing it by Zoom, which I started during the pandemic used to be totally in person. All of my interviews were in person, audio only. And that was really wonderful in that, it fosters a tremendous intimacy. Yeah. And so, especially with what I'm trying to do with getting people to talk about stuff that they normally don't talk about, <clears throat> um, made that a lot easier. I, I, you know, I still have been able to do that. It's just not quite as um, amenable to my project. Uh, I'm gonna go, eventually I'm gonna go do more in-person interviews. But um, at the same time, Zoom has also allowed me to interview people all across the world And, you know, I had Alexander Duganon from Moscow, you know, I mean, that was only zoom would allow that and lots of people. So, um, yeah, I, I'm proud of it still. And I'm still doing what I want to do with it. So
1: I, one of the questions was going to be how COVID changed that. And I know you started to do video. Matter of fact, your Abby Martin one was very well, (laughs) well, Mm -hmm. um, produced. It looked like, uh, you've kind of stepped away from that. You're going Mm -hmm. to go back out on the road to, to kind of do the shows or are you, trying to focus more on kind of the other stuff. And this is just something you can uh, supplement it with.
3: Yeah. Well, we, we have, we've done live events. We did a big one in Texas last year and I did like five or six interviews there. So that was in person. Yeah. We are going to have, I don't know if I should announce this now, but we are going to have um, actually, why not? Yeah. We are about to announce an unregistered weekend in Chicago, which is October 21st, 22nd and 23rd. And that'll be featuring two guys, everyone listening knows, uh, Curtis Yarvin and Jack, the Perfume Nationalist will be there mm-hmm. and I'll be interviewing them a lot. And those will be in person, obviously, and those will become podcast episodes and people who come can talk and they can be part of the Q&A and discussion and hang out with Jack and Curtis throughout the weekend. So save the date, October 21st, 23rd, <clears throat> Chicago, Illinois. <clears throat> but um, um, yeah, <clears throat> so I'm going to do about that. Here. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just gonna say I'm gonna do and then I'm gonna do. <clears throat> as much interviews in person as i can um i'm in the bay area right now and there are people here i'm going to interview and yeah so i mean money and time allowing um i will do that as much as i can yeah so i'm, I'm just uh on the other side of sacramento so we're we're actually pretty oh. close here so where are you exactly Folsom. oh jesus okay yeah. um johnny johnny cash there you go johnny
1: cash that's right yeah there you go yeah, so if you're over here by the prison, uh, we, can, we can say hi. Um, so let's talk about, uh, you wrote a book, The Renegade History of the United States. Um, you're in the process of writing a new book. Are you um, doing it like the Michael Malice self-publishing? You're going through a publisher? What's the status of that? And I know it's been
3: in the works for several years now. Okay, so the story with that <laughs> is that uh, it's now 11 years ago. <laughs> I, with my agent, pitched a book to all the major publishers in New York, there's going to be a follow-up to renegade history of the united states which is going to be at that point it was going to be the proposal was an examination of the effects of american popular culture in the middle east and how it has mm. essentially dissolved the controls of islamic pr- republics sharia law gets undermined by beyonce and tv shows and movies yeah. and all that stuff and they said um no we want you to do an entire history of the u.s foreign relations including all of the pop culture as it's been diffused across the world over the last 150 or so years. <clears throat> and I said, oh, well, that's a huge project. <laughs> and they said, sure, but we'll do it. So this was Grove Atlantic. Okay. Um, they, they bought the book, they bought the proposal, but they insisted that I change it so that it's this massive, massive tome, which, I've been, which has taken me this long because it's so huge. I've had to learn the sort of politics and history of all these different countries, which I didn't know, and also then examine... How American pop culture entered those countries and if the effects it had on the politics of those countries, which is what the thesis of the book is about. So I'm now I have about twenty pages left to write. Oh, I'm very wow. close, but it, it will be published by Grove Atlantic, which is a major publisher, commercial publisher, probably hopefully next year. Well, well good. Uh, th- something you said there,
1: which is uh, kind of interesting about the the Middle East and popular culture. I mean, when you look mm-hmm. back at Iran, like in the 1970s, they don't seem to be a sh- uh, they were much more modern, at least my understanding of it. How has that changed from going from kind of that, you know, you look at uh, the old footage that they had and they're wearing suits and ties and now they're, you know, kind of digressing. Give me your understanding of, of that with the, the concept you just said. Do you mean the RAND Corporation? Iran, the country. Oh,
3: oh, I, oh. Iran.
0: Iran. Iran. Okay, yeah. Iran. Hey,
3: whatever. I just didn't hear you. That's fine. I don't care. I don't care how you pronounce it. Okay. Okay. Um, Yes. Right. So if you look at Iran before <laughs> 1979, before the revolution there, and people have probably seen pictures like this, it's a very modern cosmopolitan, very Western country, at least from what we can tell from the pictures. And, yeah. you know, there's also yeah. testimony from people who lived there at the time, you know, talk to people who now live in Los Angeles, who grew up in, in Iran. Right. There's a lot. There's a lot of people like that. They'll tell you the same thing. And then when the Islamic Republic takes over in 79, yes, of course, they institute very puritanical Sharia law, as we all know. Which was fairly effective for a while, but imposing that on a people who were already exposed to good old Western pop culture has proven to be impossible. Because if you go to Tehran now, and this is many, many, many reports of this. In fact, just last night I was watching a video of an incredibly good rapper in Tehran who raps in Farsi and he's like wow. one of the best rappers out there. an Incredible flow. Yeah, uh, But um, you will see that women in Iran in particular are yelling at the islamic police there are police in iran whose sole job is to enforce sharia law so they mostly go after women for you know dressing inappropriately and we have women now like cursing them out fighting them hitting them spitting on them telling them to go fuck themselves etc etc and throwing off their scarves and their veils and all of it and it's wearing jeans and getting piercings and they don't care. Uh, I think it's over. I think I think that revolution is done. I think the Islamic Republic of Iran is essentially done. It's just a matter of time as to when it will actually officially close down. You know, but um, they haven't been able to. They have not been able. They have not been able to make Iran Iranian, Iranians into good Islamic citizens. Which is exactly the point of my book: is that when American pop culture enters a country, it this is what it always does. The communists hated it. Because they yeah. saw it as counter to communist discipline. The fascists in Germany and Italy hated it famously because it countered fascist discipline. And the Muslim fundamentalists, the Islamists around the world, hate it just as much now. So there's like all sorts of fatwas issued by Islamic clerics these days against things like, well, it was Madonna and Britney Spears about 20 years ago, and now it's Kim Kardashian and whoever the latest pop goddess is. Yeah. Who they see they see rightly as a threat to their entire project because once you have that kind of individualistic hedonistic self indulgence and I don't think those things are bad by the way right but those those are counter to any any political project really other than pure sort of anarchism uh, because all the political projects out there all the ideologies this is liberalism progressivism conservatism fascism communism you name it they all require a discipline a social discipline they require that the individual subsumes her identity to the community usually the nation state right and one's own interests and desires are subsumed to the interests and desires of the nation state this is what all of them ask for this is what this is what joe biden asked for this is what joe stalin asked for this is what adolf hitler asked for this is what mao and and you know and conservatives too asked okay for. can
1: i just interject because sure. the, the, the what makes me think though is with the, the the muslim situation where it's it's a theocratic um dictatorship your you're not your salvation has something to do with it so is that a more difficult thing to undermine uh you know that society in a sense uh you know the blue jeans took down the communists in in that but um so you think the communist yeah. and a religion uh, would be equal as far well. as breaking them down
3: well, I mean, communism and fascism offered salvation too. That's what they okay. said. Not they didn't, they didn't use the word, but that's essentially secular salvation. We will be happy. We will be blessed. We will be um, unified. We will be at peace. We will be prosperous. We will, you know, will basically enter heaven on earth through either Nazism or, or communism is what exactly what they said. So I don't quite see a difference. To me, it's all religious thinking. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. Curious. Um, yeah. You had mentioned there about
1: uh, music uh, rapper in. Iran, I'm in Iran, sorry. Uh, you had also mentioned, I think it was a James uh, Gentleman on the Blackbird podcast that uh, yeah. you th- saw a demise in music. Uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding how you <laughs> said that. I, I see music yeah. as a great diversion to a lot of things we have in the world, right? And I, I'm way too involved in politics and, and listen to stuff. Do You think the demise in that has to do with anything with the political stress that we are seeing right now? Or is it just people are not uh, thinking out of the box and they're too, you know, they used to be, Uh, anti-establishment and it seems like they're not anymore
3: yeah so when i said that to james and by the way everyone should listen to the blackbird podcast i think it's just about the best libertarian podcast out there right now um i regretted it in a sense because that was thad the music fan talking not thaddeus russell the the whatever i am social critic talking because thaddeus russell believes (laughs) That there's no such thing as bad or good music, as Miles Davis said, if it sounds good, it is good. And I think that's right. You know, that's the relativist point of view. And I am definitely on cultural issues. I'm a relativist. I think it's absurd and always elitist and condescending to say that one form of music is better than another. But it's it's impossible to prove or even demonstrate in any way. You can't support that (laughs) whatsoever. So I'm not, you know, it's just. But for my ears, my taste, there's no question. And I was talking about hip hop, mostly um, black music, R&B and hip hop, mostly, although I think it's probably true for rock as well. It sucks now. I mean, I'm I was a hip hop fan until about 10 years ago and I still am. But I just don't like almost any of the new stuff. And I think it is it is. It is substantially qualitatively different. Now, that doesn't mean it's worse. I, from my ears, it's worse. But obviously, it's not worse for most people because that stuff is incredibly popular. In fact, when I, when I see people playing new trap music songs on their, you know, out of their cars or whatever, I I'm, I really pause and I think, do you really like that? Um, the um, there's a tremendous dumbing down of hip hop that's gone on. That and it's funny to say that about hip hop because that was one of the major criticisms of it back in the golden age in the 90s and 2000s when hip hop was so great. But my God, if you compare compare the lyrics today of the top 10 hip hop songs to the lyrics of the top 10 hip hop songs from 1990, whatever, it's embarrassing because I mean, even like DMX, you know, who was basically like relatively at sort of a knucklehead rapper. I mean, you listen to his song; he tells stories. He yeah. tells stories with a, a narrative arc and with you know any rhymes throughout it and it's it's actually you know a major piece of writing and uh and nowadays it's it's well we know it's mumble rap and there's no story and there's not much rhyming and there's a lot of cursing and the, i mean it's it's mostly cursing and it's basically nigga bitch nigga bitch nigga bitch suck my dick um i mean sometimes that's actually the chant they'll chant that you know i so okay if you like that and prefer it there's nothing i have to say to you You can't be wrong, Uh, but if you don't like that stuff, let's have a conversation about it and why that is. So 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 is it because of politics, the decline in the in the according to my taste, quality of rap in the last 10 or 15 years? I don't know what it's about. I mean, this is a generational thing. You know, it's very much about (laughs) Clint Russell, best rapper alive. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm not gonna put many uh, uh comments up there, but that one was, this, was this is amazing. like serious, serious libertarian in jokes here. Right, right? Right? Um, yeah, Clint is a good friend, so I will have no comment. Um Same here. Same. The, yeah, no, Clint's a very good guy. Um well, uh yeah, it's it's sort of what's going it's about what's happening with millennials and especially Zoomers. My son's generation, he's 20 now, and you yeah. know, he was listening to trap, he listens to trap music and he has for years, and I would always tease him about it. And express bewilderment at it. And I would try to introduce him to older stuff and he would reject it, usually, although he loves 50 Cent for some reason. Um, I think it's tricky to talk generational politics because that may not even be a thing, you know. But it does seem to me that people under the age of 40, and especially people under the age of 30 these days in the United States have very different tastes um in stuff than we do and also a very different sensibility and in particular i guess boy i get so confused on this stuff because i if people know my work from way back in the day i sort of started out critiquing the puritan work ethic Mm -hmm. i was known as that guy i was the guy who who went after the puritan work ethic and is this why you were late to to the
1: podcast today uh
3: yeah there you go exactly (laughs) um work is bad well so let's make let's be clear here i mean work work in itself is a good thing that's the puritan work ethic that's ridiculous that's what i'm talking about not work not work to accomplish something like being on time for a podcast interview (laughs) that's just being a lazy piece of shit but if you that no and it's not good so um but um no it's work in itself so dmx put a lot of work into every one of his songs the tyler the creator i don't or not not him uh travis scott seems not to uh (laughs) and um you know when you put work into art, it's often better, not always. Right. You know, I think you can produce great, a lot of the greatest songs of all time were, were written in five or ten minutes. But I don't know, there seems to be also a depression in that generation. The SSRIs may have something to do with it, all the drugs they're taking. Um, the del-
1: hang on, you, you got muted here somehow.
2: I didn't do nothing.
1: Um, it, it sounds like a switch from your mic to your um, camera, maybe.
3: What just happened here? Your audio, maybe is your camera audio? The thing, anyway. It there be you better. go. Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we all know that the economic prospects of the younger generations are much worse than the prospects for my generation and for the boomers. That certainly may have something to do with it. There's a despair, I think, and a depression um, in the mood of younger people that I have not seen among gen Xers certainly. Yeah, Yeah. we we hustled, you know, I mean, that was kind of a given in our generation. People did not live at home after the high school. They got out immediately. They would either go to college or they would start working and people just hustled. And you, you just didn't see this sort of widespread. Quitting in a sense on on the economy, on the future, on making oneself better. But that's partly because they have so few prospects. They can't own a house. Jobs are scarce, et cetera, et cetera. So.
1: Um, the, the, you had also, the, once again, I just had listened to the yeah. James one. So you had made another comment in there, and then I heard you on the next show. And so I just wanted to bring this up, which is kind of the change. It sounds like the change in the structure of Renegade University and Unregistered hmm. Academy. Yep. What's the actual situation there? And if you can enlighten us on that, or at least me.
3: Yeah. So I'm no longer working with Renegade University. Um, I am now entirely... So you started bad, that, right? Yeah, yeah, I started it. But um, for various reasons I can't go into. I'm just leaving. Okay. Are you? I uh, have left it. And I'm doing everything. All my content creation is now on Patreon okay. under unregistered. And the school is now unregistered academy. So it's the same stuff. I'm teaching courses constantly. Right now I'm teaching a course on World War II, which is really popular. Um, but it's all under unregistered academy at patreon.com slash unregistered. Okay,
1: that's good to know. Uh, yeah. Let me play you this. Um, I don't know if you ever, you know, there's problems in the LP, right? The, the Mises Caucus took over and then yeah. the LP, you know, the people have left, they've had problems. There's these gentlemen that went on this uh, neoliberal podcast and I want to play you this. Um, let's see if I could find uh, this one here. Okay, so I'm going to play you this clip here. Uh, and and they, they talk about um, s- some some problems, but one of the things they bring up, I think, is is something you have, uh, something we could talk about. So um, make sure. sure you can,
0: let me know if you can, can't hear this. As, as articles that offer these weird, soft-pedaled defenses of Hitler in the 19th.
1: <laughs> I should probably, uh, ref- this is um, from the Mises Caucus website. There's a, an article about rethinking World War II. So that's what he's referencing there. But
3: who, wrote, who wrote that article?
1: Uh, Vance... Um, I'll I'll find it when when we're going here. Okay,
0: I need that to be a a great man like uh, like Otto von Bismarck or whatever. Their their preferred presidential candidate, uh, a comic named Dave Smith, is basically (laughs) an open white nationalist who says that it's it's a scientific fact that blacks are genetically less intelligent than other races. Um, He uses transphobic slurs that I'm not going to repeat here, but he basically says all transphobic or all trans people are liars their identity is a lie and he calls them the slur that you're probably thinking of um he he goes around with a list of who's who on the alt-right like stefan molyneux and nick fuentes and richard spencer and gavin McInnes and all of the all, all the podcast alt-right that, that you're probably thinking of so there's real like open white nationalism here and just bigotry of of all kinds <laughs> and, and this is the group that we're talking about, right? This is, it's not just, oh, well, some libertarians think that it's really weird how woke people are. It's, I, I feel like the complaining about wokeism is almost like the hook and that's how they get you. And then they start trying to get people into the darker stuff.
1: Uh, I, yeah. Okay. So, so, let me, th- let me say, uh, let me yeah, say, sorry. Before we <laughs> no, so even, the,
3: even, even if Dave said all of that, If he said all of that that is not still not white nationalism no my god okay now did he say i don't know tyler did he say any of that Uh, in any way obviously
1: it was a a gross misstatement of anything Uh, he had said something about trans like uh, why focus on them when there's so many other big problems out there in the world? The black one, I couldn't find. I could only imagine that it was uh, some sort of legion of skanks <laughs> jokes that he's done. Um, the, the one I kind of, first of all, there, there's there's a few things. There's there's one about taking on your, your opponents by just name calling to such degrees that you don't have to uh, associate or have conversations with them anymore, right? And I think right. maybe you can oh, give yeah. us a historical perspective of how this has come about, uh, the other one was, uh, and I'll give it here. It's rethinking the good war. Lawrence B, uh, Lawrence M. Vance, and he's a, he he wrote it for the um, Mises Institute. What I got out of that was you had talked about, the, and once again, James Gentleman's podcast about uh, blowback with World mm-hmm. War II, and mm-hmm. I think it's exactly what this article was referencing. There's nothing, you know, soft pedaling Hitler. So mm-hmm. a few things talking about this kind of Marxist. Commentary in a sense where you 're demonizing everybody to the point where they can't even respond or they're just you know irreputes and also the the world war two stuff
3: um well I mean this is all about the the split and the LP between the Mises caucus people yeah. and who whoever whoever it was who was running the l p before then who, right. who have never had any base anywhere i mean the the leaders of the l p like never appeared on any of the podcasts i ever knew about or you know they had no I, I saw no support for that faction and i think it's really just a handful of people who controlled the party because no one else cared about it but so all right i mean the mises so the lp led by sarwark um and i want to say
1: i and you don't have to commentate about the lp itself i'm not really you know concerned okay. about your what you think about okay. them well no i was but gonna you say can that. feel free to do whatever
3: <laughs> yeah i mean they're liberals basically i mean they're yeah. not they're essentially progressives who might like capitalism or something but they're very much woke uh nicholas sar i just gotta say this because i've said it before publicly but i gotta say it again because it just i can't believe it nicholas sarwark uh, this is about a year ago year and a half ago i tweeted about uh Uh, Daniel Shaver, who was murdered by the Mesa police in Arizona. I'm sure everybody listening knows about this very well and has seen the video. And I asked on Twitter, I said, or I said on Twitter that there was no media coverage of the killing of Daniel Shaver when, of course, there was massive, overwhelming 24-7 media coverage every time a black person gets killed by the cops. And Nicholas Sarwark took it upon himself to correct me. And show me that there actually were two local newspaper reports about Solid. about Daniel, Danny Shaver getting shot to death by the cops on his hands and knees. I and then he argued with me back and forth about how that was sufficient sufficient coverage, and he wouldn't answer my questions. I said, is that sufficient, Nicholas? Is that a, Nick? Is that good enough for you? That should there have been a more media coverage of this? He he didn't answer me. He didn't answer me. He did not say that there should have been more. That national media should have covered it, et cetera. No, nothing. I I I mean. Right after that, I didn't know anything about the guy at the time, but I was so horrified. I actually went to the Mises caucus. Mises caucus invited me to give a talk at the California LP convention last year in the summer, and people can watch this online. I give a whole spiel about this episode with Sarwark and that speech. Mm -hmm. I was just, I I, I couldn't, I don't know. I couldn't believe it, but um, I started to hear that he might have been a Fed, and I thought, yeah, you know, to say something like that as the national chair of the Libertarian Party I that's as anti-libertarian as one can be. So I if you're gonna take down the LP, who's better to lead it than Nicholas Sarwark? Um, so they are cultural liberals who are now have just lost to or were losing to people who are not cultural liberals. And by the way, I am I am on cultural stuff, I am neither with Sarwark nor with the Mises Caucus. There are a few people in the Mises caucus. I think Angela is probably with me on most things. Um, But I'm thinking through, I mean, the the sort of people I know of in the Mises caucus who are the leaders of it, all of whom I know well, we we differ. I mean, a lot of them are basically much more culturally conservative than I am. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And I have never heard any of them talking about Passing laws, censoring things, or you know, putting people in jail for consensual activities or whatever. So I'm not con- terribly concerned about that. I would be nice if they saw things like I did, but that's, they don't need to. And I and I'm still going to support them so long as they never call for the state to do anything against people for doing consensual activities. So that's what it's about. It's about these core cultural issues, which is interesting because there's no, there was no fight. I mean. The, the losing faction of the LP, you may have noticed, never talks about economics, right. never talks about the state. They don't criticize the Mises people for the major issues of libertarianism. The, the main stuff that the Mises people talk about is that, is about economics and the state, public policy, all that good stuff. You know, they rarely talk about cultural issues. In fact, they're forced to because they're at, they're de- it's demanded of them that they do talk about it. And when they do, they're not into it. They're not into the program that's been laid out by the woke by the woke regime
1: a matter of fact in that interview one of the guys cr- critiques was why well, don't i don't see uh, mises talking about uh, woke stuff like but that's kind of the point of of not discussing the woke stuff it's it's about the the utilitarian theory or whatever you're talking about you know economics yeah. so um yeah anyway yeah. continue on
3: yeah 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 i mean you know so to me it's um and their changes to the party platform I had zero problem with. I thought the thing about bigotry was bullshit to begin with. Not bullshit. It was worse than that. It was it's coercive. And I actually I think there's better reasons for opposing that than what I've heard from the Mises people. It it, um, it's virtue signaling. They don't define bigotry. If they define bigotry, I might be OK with that. But to say bigotry is not allowed. I'm a bigot. God damn it. I hate all sorts of things. Right. in the world i hate i hate a lot of things and a lot of people and even i even hate cultures there's cultures that i fucking hate tyler there's even you know what there's even national cultures that i hate okay oh my. or at least or at least seriously dislike don't we are they all the same to us is, is russian and, and chinese and american and, and salvadoran culture all the same to us no of course not
1: and if you um, get involved in those cultures you realize that they're probably even more
3: bigoted about other cultures than than we are oh by far of yeah. course i mean jesus christ hotep jesus said this to me you know white people white americans are probably the least racist people on the planet and i think he's right i think he's right so yeah um that stuff sucks fuck it i'm i'm over it i've been over it from the beginning i've been criticizing that shit since before a lot of people were born (laughs) um so you know, I but at the same time, I'm a cultural radical too. So it's odd. I, you know, I'm a, my my renegade politics about culture is also not. It's neither. It's neither the progressive woke stuff at all, nor is it the cultural conservatism that I think is fairly prominent in the Mises Caucus. But, yeah, and it's it's what I enjoy about your. Um, okay, so maybe talk Thank to you. us real quick
1: about the blowback theory and and why that means you are uh, specifically uh, pertaining to. Uh, World War II and, and Hitler and
3: why you're such a big fan of Hitler as a result. Mm. Yeah. Why I want to create a <laughs> national socialist America. Right. right. Yeah. And we need a strong leader named Thad who will have unilateral power to do anything, right. which you know might not be a bad idea, actually. We might want to consider that. <laughs> We'd certainly have more fun. Um, blowback. So. You want the whole story about World War II? No, just, just <laughs> okay. kind of the overview
1: of, of why this guy, you know, it's, it's similar to Ukraine, right? Where you can't um, say something that you're not for it and that it wasn't, it's maybe not a good idea
3: without the opposition saying you're a toady for, you know, yeah. Putin or whatever. Okay, so there's two forms of blowback with World War II. One is the one that a lot of people know about, I'm sure all your listeners know about, which is that Hitler was essentially created by Versailles, by the Versailles Treaty, by the outcome of World War I in which major portions of Germany were taken from Germany and given over to other countries. Um, Which, by the way, people need to know this. In Germany, this was universally hated and this was communists and Nazis agreed on this. This is the one thing they agreed on was that the Versailles Treaty was an abomination and was absolutely unjust to the German people and that those territories needed to be Rejoined with Germany, um, you know, overnight people who were German, who identified as German, who spoke German. Uh, were suddenly Czech or Polish citizens or under the control of the British and the French. What? What? Why? You know, without their say at yeah. all. Imagine that, right? Imagine that all of a sudden you're a, you're a citizen of Mexico. What? Like, okay. Um, it's worse than that, though, because you're now a citizen of a country that thinks you are biologically evil. Which remember anti German racism is a thing. It's a real thing. We are now seeing anti Russian racism. Real anti Russian racism is totally common and acceptable and fine. They're banning all Russians from activities, right? All Russians. If you're just born in the goddamn country, you're considered to be somehow evil. What? That's racism. So there was plenty of anti German racism. Um, So these people were suddenly in countries that were controlled by anti-German racists on top of that, not just not just dislocated, uh, separated from their their families and their communities, but they're they're now living in a world in which they are their pariahs. Um, So that gave Hitler fertile ground to build a movement in. Right. Very easy to 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 um, recruit people who believe that Germany is a great nation and should be um, reconstituted. So that's that. That's that blowback. What the Allies did caused Hitler, the rise of Hitler, or at least partly caused it. What I'm arguing is different, which is that the, the way the United States conduct, entered and conducted the war caused many, many, many of the deaths, probably more than half of the deaths in World War II total. So right now, historians estimate that the total death toll of World War II is about 65 million. And I believe more than half of that would not have happened if the United States had not entered the war the way that it did. And what it U.S. entry into the war, it it made two regional wars, which were vicious and horrible and bloody, no question about it. The war between Japan and China and the war between Germany and Poland and Russia. Those were real wars that the United States did not cause, um, had really very little to do with. It's not our fault, not the Americans fault those wars but they were regional they were limited in scope and the ambitions of the Japanese Empire and the ambitions of Hitler were limited. They, neither one wanted to do anything more than that. They wanted to take China, part of China for the resources and the Germans, the Nazis wanted to take Poland and Russia for these weird racial ideas. Now that both those were, as I said the invasion of those countries by those empires were absolutely murderous um, killed mi- millions of people for that but there was no reason for it to expand beyond the, beyond those wars and that's what the us did with the urging of churchill in britain for sure they wanted to make it into a global conflict because the united states the americans who were at the center of power in the fdr white house the foreign policy establishment at that time made it very clear that they needed needed the united states to emerge from that conflict from the war as the undisputed global hegemon the superpower that we know and love today and that's what they got so to do that they had to it had to be a global conflict and they had to absolutely destroy those two regimes because those two regimes were not interested in doing business doing trade with the united states and that was not possible uh, not allowed by the liberal by the liberal establishment at the time that wanted a global economy that was managed by the united states so you couldn't have what was called autarky, self-sufficiency anywhere in the world it had to be a global economy that had nominal free trade, but that was actually tightly managed by the United States, which was the dominant partner in any trade deal, right? <clears throat> so that's why they went in full force. That's why the United States built the biggest military in the history of the world and then deployed it against those two regimes, annihilated every bit of, bit of it, literally killed every leader in the Nazi regime and in Imperial Japan, took control of those countries entirely, took control of those regions entirely. If you take control of Central Europe and South Asia and and Eastern and Southeast Asia, uh, you're going to control basically the entire world economy. And that's what the United States did. And that's why they went in. They created all those bombs and tanks and bullets and missiles, killed tens of millions of people, I believe, needlessly, because neither one of those regimes wanted to expand outside those spheres. And so the only reason we went to war in World War II was to create the global superpower, was to create the global American empire that many of us now don't want. But that's the origin of it, is in World War II, 1941, the decisions that were made then. And I, there's much more to be said about that. We can talk about the Holocaust, the direct relationship between U.S. entry into the war and the Holocaust. My thesis is that the U.S. entry into the war necessitated the fulfillment of the Holocaust. The Nazis' policy on the Jews was very clear throughout from 1933 until the fall of 1941. It was emigration, emigration. Mm emigration they did not want to kill the jews because they believed that's what inferior anti semites did like the russians did the russians had pogroms where they should have killed jews spontaneously it was anarchic chaotic and what did it result in hitler said it resulted in the bolshevik revolution when Mm -hmm. you just murder jews in the street what you get is communism and he was right and so he said no we have to orderly march them out of the country that's a german way to go he called that the anti-semitism of reason And he said to the West, every single year, for more than 10 years, every single year, he would get up on stage and give these big speeches to television cameras intended for the West. And he said to the West, I will send you the Jews that we have on our own boats, if you will take them. And the West, the United States and Britain and France said, no, no, we're not taking any Jewish refugees. People don't know this, but the United States took no significant number of Jewish refugees from the Third Reich from 1933 until Hitler was dead in 1945 all the way through the Holocaust, all the way through the war and the Holocaust and the Nazi regime. No Jews were allowed into this country or Britain or France or anywhere else really. He said also, if you don't take the Jews, which they didn't do, if you don't take the Jews and you stop me from expanding into Poland from taking our territory that belonged to us in Poland and Czechoslovakia and Russia militarily, then I will kill them. So he called them hostages. He, was, he said, we are holding them as hostages to stop the West from intervening against us. If you intervene against us militarily, I will kill the Jews. I will not kill them unless you do that. He said that over and over again, but I will also hand them to you if you just take them. And at that time, the United States had a population of about 110 million people, less than half of what we have now. So there was plenty of room for the 500,000 Jews who lived in Germany at the time. We didn't take any of them. So... FDR forces Japan to attack Pearl Harbor, thus entering the war. Germany declares war on the United States. U.S. declares war on Germany. At that point, the U.S. had already been furnishing major weapons um, to the allies to fight Germany. So the U.S. was already effectively at war. Hitler at that point knew he was a dead man, that once the might, the economic and military might of the U.S. was deployed against him, he had no chance of surviving this. And so he said, fuck it. Okay, I gave you warnings. I told you many, many times what I would do if you did this. So that's when the Holocaust began. The day after the declaration of war on Germany by the United States Mm -hmm. was the first gassing of Jews in a concentration camp, a death camp, which was in Chelmno in Poland. The day after was the first time they gassed Jews. So I think there is a direct causal link between the two, between U.S. entry into the war and what we know as the Holocaust. Yeah. And what's interesting is uh, you don't have to make up egregious
1: stories to show that Hitler is obviously a bad guy which you know we end up doing to try to perpetuate it to make it look like it's it's a noble war or whatever right um question for you I, I do you know who Jeff and Michael Shara are they okay well I'm gonna say it real quick so Michael Shara he wrote I think it was the damn Yankees and then he writes the book killer angels about Gettysburg okay he's mm-hmm. gonna write this trilogy and he ends up dying and someone says to his son who's just a gemstone guy hey Maybe you can write the the, the rest of it. So he ends up writing gods and angels. uh, I mean, sorry, gods and generals and and their whole trilogy. He finishes off and writes a bunch more. Point is they're writing historical novels in a sense. So it's um, you know the actual events that happen, yet there's conversation. It's written like a novel. How do you are you familiar with this kind of historical uh, books? Obviously, you you would be. What do you think about that way of like disseminating history in kind of a historical novel sense as compared to
3: what y- you're doing? That's a hard question for me to answer because um, as a good postmodernist i believe <laughs> i believe that in a sense everything is either fiction or non-fiction that there is no <clears throat> there's no that my book you know which is a very in terms of methodology is a very standard methodology very standard history i mean I, I use evidence right numbers and <clears throat> dates and quotes to to support my arguments versus um historical fiction where they make up essentially everything, or at least they base the narrative on, they base the narrative on what we call facts, but then elaborate on them in ways that are fictional. I don't think my book is any closer to the truth than historical fiction is. I don't. I think it's closer maybe to what one might surmise given the evidence that we count as being important and valid, but there are ways to think about the past that are not rooted in the evidence that I think can help us understand them better um, and give us a new understanding of them. So I have no problem with historical fiction. I tend not to be interested in it because I'm very hard headed and old fashioned actually. I'm, ne- I'm really not a postmodernist when it comes to history. <laughs> I just don't do it like that, um, but, but I have no problem with it. You know, um, I do think that it is essentially a meditation by the author on the psychology of great historical actors. And I think that's where it's most useful. They are attempting to psychoanalyze, essentially, the great historical actors. And I think that's a wonderful exercise. It may be bullshit. It may be wrong. It may be useless, but it can also be very, very illuminating. But that's really what they're trying to do. And I'm also famously interested in psychoanalysis of political actors. So go for it. I think there's good historical fiction and not so good historical fiction, but I think it's all all a worthy attempt.
1: Okay. I have another um, clip I'm going to play for you here. Um, sure. This is from the Reason Roundtable, and <clears throat> this was um, just the other day. Now, i got a specific reason for this, uh, of playing this for you, so uh, here we go. Uh,
2: it was written in 1980. I think she died shortly thereafter, maybe 83 85, something like that. Um, so this is fairly late in her life. Um, someone is trying to adapt the book Anthem, and she writes... Uh, I'm glad to hear there are young Randians in Hawaii, but you make a mistake in associating the libertarians with me. They are my enemies and have nothing to do with my philosophy except for occasional attempts to plagiarize it. And then she says, the reason for my disapproval of this adaptation is that I cannot stand the thought of someone monkeying around with my material. My work means too much to me. If you remember the climax of the Fountainhead... I'm sure you will understand this. So this is basically Ayn Rand responding to fan mail by telling all libertarians to go kick rocks and also like sort of vaguely threatening maybe to like bomb an adaptation of anthem in Hawaii. Um, every letter is like this. I she is the most intense correspondent you could possibly imagine.
1: Okay, so my reason for uh, giving you that uh, that clip there uh, is 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 basically I've heard okay. So Ayn Rand, to give you the the backstory, uh, you probably got it there. She's writing, complaining about someone kind of repurposing her work or not using it in the way that she is solely focused on. So I've heard you previously talk about Glenn Beck, who has ranted and raved about your book, and you're not too excited about that. So what is your, uh, at least at the time, maybe you didn't like Glenn Beck. So how do you feel Mm -hmm. about someone... Um, and and I, even on your dust cover, I think I had a quote by Michael Malice, uh, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Michael Medved, who probably mm-hmm. is much mm-hmm. different than, than you as well. Um, mm-hmm. How do you feel yeah. about people kind of taking your ideas and perpetuating them and where you might not always feel comfortable about it? And by the way, my my greatest interview hope would be you and Glenn Beck, because I don't know if you've actually heard him recently or I have followed him quite along. I think he's very much open minded to having a conversation.
3: So uh, that would be my wet dream interview, by the way. So, Me too. I would love So when the book came out, when Renegade came out, that was 2010. And that's when Glenn Beck was had taken a turn recently at yeah. that point toward looking at progressivism, the history of progressivism as yes. the roots of all the problems in, uh, in current society. And at that point, I thought he was sort of half right. He was on the right track, but he just wasn't trained in this and he didn't know the history very well. And so he was kind of like stumbling about there. Um, but boy, since then, Glenn Beck has gotten very, very smart. And every time I see him nowadays, I don't really follow him, but, I, you know, I see him fairly often. Clips and stuff um, I've had friends on his show who've told me about it. He's um, tremendous. He's great. He's doing really good work. And I agree with him mostly, most of the time. I mean, he had Cody. Everyone should watch Cody Wilson's interview with him. You know, he's Cody's up there talking about Foucault and gun rights and the end of gun control and the profound meaning of 3D printed guns. And Beck is right with him. I mean, this is very heady stuff. Cody's a serious intellectual and Beck was right there and very and Cody's extremely radical, too. Um, But um, so I'd love to do Glenn Beck. I loved I'd love that he. He read the book and he liked it. He wanted me on the show for a minute there. Um, And then he did his research. (laughs) Yeah, well, Michael Medved is a very classic sort of cultural conservative, you know, um, but he I I was on his show and he somehow liked it. He got really amazing. Like I'm I have tremendous respect for people who can do that. And that's, again, what I try to do on my show. Right. It's like I've had most of the people on my show I disagree with fundamentally about politics, even libertarians. Um, But to take to respect, respect their ideas and to take them seriously um, and to seriously examine and analyze them rather than dismiss them with an ad hominem or some insult, which is what usually happens in politics. So for someone like Michael Medved to say something good about my book, which is a celebration of horrors and drunks, et cetera, um, is pretty impressive. Uh, I... I don't care. I'm, I want that. I want, I want, I mean, mostly I want lefties, you know, it was really written for the left in a sense.
1: So why, why did these two right-wingers in a sense, um, and there might've been obviously more um, gravitate to your book? What was it about
3: it that they, they liked? Was it just the honesty? um, I think, well, I think it was mostly because I, I put the lie to progressive history. So Mm. it's, the book is, a, you know, there's a whole chapter devoted to explaining how FDR and the New Deal were very closely related to Nazism and fascism. They love that, of course. Yeah. Um, the whole mythology about slavery being one one system of, you know, this long, unbroken history of oppression and victimhood, which is wrong. They you know, they like that. Uh, they lie I then again, I say. I start the book with a total denunciation of the founding fathers, showing them to be prudes and puritan, puritanical uh, do-gooders and imperialists as well. That's the new book. Mm. I'm showing how they were imperialists from the beginning. So I don't know. I mean, these are just good intellectuals. That's all I can say. I think Medved and Beck are just good, solid intellectuals that I wish we had more of. I I don't even care what your political ideology is, as long as you're open to ideas. That's that's what I care about
1: only. It's curiosity. Curious. And, and it's always we started this podcast. And that was exactly what I, I loved about your, your podcast. You know, there's some of them I, I'm like, I want to hear that one. And then some some of them I've started and like, I'm not interested. And then I was captivated. So part of that's your your interview style of kind of being a psychiatrist or psychologist, of digging mm-hmm. down into people's, you know, it, mm-hmm. it reminds me, of, you know, me as a libertarian, I always like to find the root of the problem rather than, you know, mm-hmm. saying, hey. Uh, college education mm-hmm. is too high. Let's just forgive it. How about we f- go back to the original problem, why it's that way? And that's kind of your questions of mm-hmm. digging down there. Um, one yep. other thing, uh, so wh- I don't know if it's your contemporary, but um, David Horowitz, mm-hmm. the, the famous lefty, Ramparts, grew up in Berkeley and kind of mm-hmm. that's where, where you were at the time. Um, I was a big fan <clears throat> and loved his book, Radical Son, which kind of reminded me of a part two version of Whitaker Chambers' Witness of coming from the hard left Moving over, and then he got you know disenfranchised with the, the Black Panthers and Betty, his his uh, secretary that was killed by them. Um, the right loves to glom onto people that have converted, in a sense, that, that really knock that. Have you found yourself, you know, obviously the two people we just mentioned there, but um, kind of the right courting you in a sense because you've left the left. <laughs>
3: Yeah. So, quick aside, I went to high school with David Horowitz's son, Ben. Oh, okay. and Ben Ben Horowitz is the Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz, which is one of the biggest VC firms in the world. And Andreessen, Mark Andreessen, has um, asked to be on my show, but
1: <laughs> so, I think he was um, just on Met,
3: uh, Malice's show. Yeah, he's done. He's done doing media now. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Ben. Hor- yeah, so I knew Ben in high school. But um, David Horowitz's father, as you said, was this Berkeley lefty who then became a right winger and became sort of an anti-lefty, famously so the right wing and I have had an interesting relationship and I think it's more strained now because the right wing has taken in recent months has taken a hard right turn on cultural issues or at least started to pay attention to cultural issues and I yes. don't like what they're doing at all okay. I think it's basically homophobia dressed up as other stuff um, just really old school cultural conservatism that is I thought was dead and gone but apparently it's making a revival I mean the Texas GOP Platform uh, calling homosexuality abnormal. Oh, whoa, what? What? What year is this, guys? You know, I and even though I completely agree with them about um, the left indoctrinating kids into gender ideology in schools, I think that's going on, and I think it's terrible. I think the left indoctrinates kids into all sorts of things, though. I think it's all bad. I don't think the left is trying to have sex with children, um, but I do think that they are indoctrinating them into this whole worldview, which which is i doing that i think is grotesque um but so the right is hung up on this they're fixated on this thing right now and i'm not into it and so i'm pretty and they're not into me nowadays or less so well that's not really true they're still pretty friendly to me but we'll see i don't know we'll see if they hold on to this whole drag queen hysteria if they continue thinking the drag queens are the root of all evil or that they're evil at all we're not going to have a good time because i am people don't know this but i am this is true. I'm I'm the leading historian of black drag queens. I I wrote my first scholarly journal article, that my only scholarly journal peer-reviewed article, academic article, is a long treatise on black drag queens in the 40s, 50s, and 60s and the relationship with the civil rights movement, which was not a good relationship. Um yeah, um, and I also I'm very close with the production company that created rupaul and rupaul's drag race this is world of wonder so i know those guys i'm very and i'm i'm not gay and i've never been i don't even like drag shows very much but i polit- politically and i need to i'm gonna write about this politically drag has been very very liberatory in many many ways i think less so nowadays but certainly in its in its origins it was and I, we can talk about that later but um anyway so we're gonna have a problem if these if these knucklehead conservatives keep thinking that drag queens are, are evil in themselves, um, if they're trying to indoctrinate kids, fuck yeah, shut them down. But most of them are not. So I have a pretty niche podcast, right? Libertarian podcast review. And you,
1: sure you, did. You, you outdid <laughs> me with black drag queens. That's, that's maybe even more. Um, now I, my, my whole thing with the, and I don't want to necessarily get it. You've been on um, uh, Clint Russell, had you on talking about age of consent. Malice had you on, you've had a show you had that guy on there that did the whole, um, documentary, I think, about age of consent. People can go check that out. I'm not mm-hmm. that interested in that. My thing on a lot of this is parents, right? Uh, the drag queen and you're taking your mm-hmm. parents control control the situation as best you can, right. and it's on you right. in that sense. So totally. that's kind of kind of my theory there. Um, Me too. Yep. I, I would. I just went and saw um, uh, Maverick, Top Gun movie, okay, over the weekend, oh. and uh-huh. it was fantastic. Okay, if people mm-hmm. want to go see it. That's my my cool. view of that one. Um, I know the libertarian and the anti-war, sometimes they're like, hey, this is propaganda. But I'm, I'm seeing mm-hmm. it. And I, my sister sent me a text because she had just gone and she's like, hey, we saw this movie. It was fantastic. It wasn't woke and didn't preach to us. And I had the same mm-hmm. feeling coming out of there too. First of all, the the enemy was, they never said who it was. It was just enemy, some NATO violation of something rather. So they were going in after this. Now, it reminded me, first of all, of kind of uh, when Star Wars came out in the late 70s where you'd had this malaise of, Logan's run um, you know audit space odyssey 2001 a bunch of these movies that were just dark and dour and suddenly you had star wars which was good guy bad guy positive mm. right so I I feel like we're kind of starting that kind of process maybe this is a movie that does it but is it is it okay as anti-war person to go to
3: a movie like this and just enjoy it for what it is and not feel that you're being propagandized to so I am two things. I am a lifelong anti-war activist. When I was a lefty growing up, I was anti-war. And since I've stopped being a lefty, I've been even more anti-war. It is the number one issue for me. It always has been, probably always will be. I think it's the most important thing in politics. I wish everybody cared about it as much as I did. I wish everybody were Scott Horton, Um, but we're not. So that's one thing I am. The other thing I am is a lifelong lover of war movies. Mm. Oh, what do we do with that? Yeah. So, I mean, and my son, you know, I've he knows my politics. He basically shares a lot of my politics. But he and I, that's one of the things we do. We go we watch war movies. We love them. Um, I mean, I'm talking about anyone that's, that has good production values. I don't care what the politics are. If the production values are good, I'm down. What do you do with that? Well, um. It's a real problem because Hollywood's, con- or I should say, the Pentagon's control of Hollywood, maybe, probably is the major foundational support for U.S. foreign policy, because that's how they recruit soldiers, that's how they staff the military to yep. do what they do. <laughs> it's also how they, it's also how they maintain sort of this broad tacit support for the military and the Pentagon and the empire people don't question it because those are our heroes yeah um in the movies well i mean if you go if you go and watch top gun or some movie you know or sniper american sniper which i that one i did not like because that was that was just incredibly psychotic um mass murder dressed up as glory i i I still can't get over that one but most of them i don't feel that way about um if you come away with it, if you enjoy the entertainment value or video games, I mean, video game, fucking Call of Duty, holy God. I mean, Call of Duty is probably responsible for, you know, the existence of NATO now, <laughs> the, the maintenance of NATO. Um, if you watch those things or play those games and maintain a critique of them, we're good. We're fine. It's like comedy, it's like stand up comedy, right? Lots of, lots of comics say stuff that we don't like that's offensive. Right. Politically offensive. You know, and it doesn't matter what your politics are. Well, but you can still laugh at it. and still think it's funny, and it can make you think. Uh, if you if you hear a comic make a racist joke and then become a racist, you're an idiot. If you hear a comic make a racist joke and you laugh, but you also know that racism is not okay or not a good idea, then we're fine. And I think that's what most of stand-up comedy was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's what we did. We went to these see these stand-up comics perform they would say jokes that now would be considered racist we might have considered them somewhat racist they were somewhat racist but they were jokes it was entertainment and so we didn't take it seriously and certainly didn't make us change our minds about you know the biological inferiority of black people or whatever it is right who I mean yeah so um, I'd I'd say the same thing for war movies have have your critical mind during and after and you're fine don't 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 feel guilty about enjoying it it's fun to watch people blow up stuff
1: yeah fantastic. Uh, I had mentioned how it came from the right uh, kind of the last last little bastion of right hood was for me to let go of uh, was the uh, anti-war thing and and by the way, I think the right and the left right now they're not they're anti-war when their guy's not in power. that's that's to me that's yeah. kind of the semblance that you see of it. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I was able to, to like I said, Murray Rothbard and some of the, the right way to think about some of these things really helped me. I didn't have to be a communist sympathizer and I could do that. What's something since you've moved away from the the harder left, what's the one of the last things that you held on to uh, principles in a sense or guiding lights that the left may have had that you've um, either kept and, and besides war? Something that, that maybe that is uh, more seen
3: with that other side that you actually had a hard time giving up. Well, I mean, I was going to say anti-racism, but you know, mm. the anti yeah. anti-racism. What's called anti-racism now is is totalitarian bullshit. Now, non-racism, I would say, you know, is mm. a left wing value too, maybe, or maybe that's actually conservative value. I don't know, but you know, the the put it this way, the disinterest in racism is gotcha. a left wing right. value for sure that I've carried over. Um, feminism. You know, the I was thinking about this today, you know, like people forget that women didn't have property rights until the 1960s in most states. Yeah, Uh, they forget that women in the professions were treated like shit, were treated like shit until very recently. That It was impossible to enter many of the professions until very recently. Now they're taking over. I know they're taking over the colleges they are taking over many of the professions. I know. I know. But that's all very new. And so like my mother, grew up, she got an abortion in Mexico in the 60s because it was illegal in the United States. Now, many people listening to this will think that was a good thing. I don't, but that's another value I carry over. Um, I'm pro-choice, although I'm totally sympathetic to the argument that it is murder. It's just that we can't ever prove it one way or the other. We can't. And so until I see real evidence that convinces me that it's murder, um, I'm going to be pro-choice. But I totally respect, I, I respect completely people's opposition to it on the grounds that it's murder. And by the way, I was literally never told that that was the argument against abortion by the right. It was always anti-woman, it was Mm -hmm. always misogyny. Mm -hmm. That's what we were told it was about. No one ever said to me, oh, they think it's murder. And I was like, huh, well, you think it's murder? Like how can you prove it's not murder? You can't, I also can't prove it's not murder. But anyway, so those are values that I still carry over. Um, I would say this though, I think maybe the most important thing for me is what I would call cosmopolitanism and so I'm an anti-globalist, right? So the, the sort of MAGA right-wing critique of globalism, I believe 100%. I am 100% with them, 100% with them on that. Take down NATO, take down the EU. I'm pro-Brexit. Every single globalist, the United Nations, NATO, all of it, go. I'm with them on that. But I'm also a cosmopolitan. I'm not sure they are. Uh, The United States is a good place to live. I'm really glad I was born here. But there's a lot of stuff in the rest of the world that I love just as much. And I love traveling. I love I love being in a very diverse world. I live in Oakland, which is full of lunatic commies, but it also is full of people from all over the world who are not lunatic commies, by the way. They're, They're immigrants who are working hard and building businesses and creating businesses and all that stuff. Uh, and I love that. I love that. I lived in Oregon for a little while, for a couple of years, and I hated the fact that everybody was white. I really did. Not because of some bullshit left wing, like white people suck ideology. It's just boring. Like if I lived in China, I'd be bored, too, where everybody's Chinese or Japan. Same thing. Um, so diver- that kind of diversity, I do think is really good and important for me. I'm not saying everyone should like it. If you want to live in a, on a, in a white nationalist commune in Idaho, go for it. I will, I will protect your right to do that but it's just not me i'm not into it so cosmopolitanism is a very left wing sensibility i would say you don't find it as much among conservatives and you do find it much more among liberals and leftists and that's the one thing about liberals i like they spend you know they spend summers in france <laughs> and that's because they're rich but i mean right. but they're also interested in they're also interested in in other cultures other nations and other countries so yeah
1: uh, so we'll we'll close it up here but i i just thought of one last thing i wanted to ask you so you you mentioned the word misogyny and to me now i think it, trans um, is a big issue and in sports, right? And it feels yeah. like to me, I, I have, I, so I do cycling, and there's many people out there that are very woke within the cycling world uh, who push fema- uh, men to be able to race with women, you know, biological uh, in the sports. And it feels like to me that's the ultimate uh, misogynist. Am I, am I incorrect?
3: Um, Unintentional. So- Maybe I I I spent about a half an hour with Joe Rogan going over this. Um I remember that. Yes. Yeah. You guys
1: di- diverted have... from the uh the, the the kind of wispy man to the to the big bodybuilder and that there's a gradiations in between. Yeah. But yeah.
3: Yeah, but I mean that you know, he so I I hate what's going on. I hate that these trans people are taking over women's sports and dominate it's disgusting. I mean it's really disgusting. Um <clears throat> I also think that it's utterly legitimate to believe that you are of a gender that you were not assigned. Um, but if you're born with that kind of body, it's just obvious that you have an advantage in a sport. So, you know, the, and the worst thing that, which is what Joe gets pissed off about most. And I'm just as furious about it. Cause I'm also, I, I'm a martial artist too, is, is Fallon Fox, the, um, right. the trans woman who broke Beat the up. jaw of a woman. Who, he, she, he fought with and almost killed another, I think. But, um, So I said on Rogan, I said, look, why don't we instead of having just weight divisions or or sorry, instead of just dividing the sports by by sex or gender divide it by what really matters, because if I'm going to I don't want to fight like a six foot two inch muscled woman, which they exist, who's really skilled. She'll kick my fucking ass. Um, But I'd love to fight a five two guy who's, you know, half my size and has no skills. That'd be no problem. Right. So what matters to me is the length of your arms, the height of your body your muscle mass, your fast twitch muscles, all the things that go into athleticism, right? That matter mm-hmm. in athleticism and mm-hmm. athletics. So have it by that, you know, have it by those categories instead of by just this arbitrary thing called gender. It's bullshit, right? right? So that's that's what I'd say. Um, but yeah, I'm completely with you. I think there needs to be some separation of those types of bodies from other types of bodies. If you're going to compete together, it's all a social construct. I'm talking as a postmodernist now, of course, to me, everything's a social construct. But like, if you're going to play a game, you got to follow the rules of the game or there's no game. There's no game. So I like playing games and sports. So we follow the rules. Like I'm a total modernist when I'm in the game because I enjoy the fun of it. Uh, and so, but we got to make it fair and that's what we got to do.
1: Uh, well, so, I appreciate it. So Thaddeus, uh, yeah, totally. tell everybody where they can find you, sign up with your courses and um, and what do you have coming up?
3: It's all patreon.com unregistered. You can also go to my website, thaddeusrussell.com.
1: Well, there you go. All right. Well, Thank I appreciate you. you once again coming in today. Uh, thanks everybody for checking the show out. I do a Kill Tony knockoff show about once a month. We're coming up here. We're gonna, Andy and I are going to do it again. So, people, feel free to send me your uh, DM. Me, we'll send you a link. You'll come in, do your one minute spiel. We'll rip on you, and then you go out. So, Thaddeus, once again, big big fan. I, I appreciate you coming in. If you want to hang on a little bit, we'll do the outro, and then um, see you everybody. Sure. Thank you.
2: Okay, I'm leaving now, bye guys. But she's back. And now.
3: Chick-fil-A is completely overrated. It's not that good. I prefer Zaxby's. I prefer Popeye's.
1: It takes a tough man to make a tender forecast, Nick. <laughs> I guess that's how yeah. keep fucking that chicken. <laughs> Should I vote for Dick Cheney on the Libertarian Party? Do I yes. have an
2: obligation to vote for Dick Cheney? I would say so. Yes.
3: Did it work for those people? <laughs>
0: no, it never does. I mean, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but... <laughs> But it might work for us. That one dude was like, "Not a podcast. I can't find it anywhere, and they don't have video." (laughs) Oh yeah, Peter Janky. Yeah, Yeah, I blocked him.
1: I'll do it. If he unblocks me, I'll I'll, he'll buy your shirt if you unblock Bert. (laughs) He's a wigger.
0: Yeah, nothing cooler than a forty nine year old wigger. I just started live streaming. Cut me some slack. I'm fucking. I'm pretty high tech for a boomer. (laughs) Uh, But anyways, boomer.